In terms of waves of reinfection, there's never been that I'm aware of a documented major epidemic slash pandemic where there hasn't been some form of second wave. What we don't want in this case is for it to be like the impact of Spanish flu in Australia, where the second wave was much worse than the first. Hello, Jane. Thanks very much for joining us on Blue Notes. Normally, this is a board matters series where we talk to directors about their external interests. But in this particular case, your external expertise and your external interests include infectious diseases and epidemiology. So it's an incredibly fortuitous time to talk to you, albeit a, a terrible time. But you had a distinguished career in the public service, including health, before joining the ANZ board and some other corporate boards. Mm. But you're also the chair of the Global Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And in March, the Prime Minister appointed you to the executive board of the Australian National COVID-19 Coordination Commission. Can you tell us what those two roles actually are? And with um, the CEPI in particular, how did that come about? Yes, thank you. Um, and and hello to everybody listening. So <laughs> certainly my role, at um, we call it CEPI. And CEPI is a global not-for-profit who until recently was described as the little-known CEPI, and now we're very well known. Our job is to firstly raise money and then to invest in research leading towards the development of vaccine candidates for what we call neglected and priority pathogens, and including something which is usefully called disease X, as in the unknown pathogen. And we've been established for the last several years basically because the world didn't handle the Ebola crisis in West Africa very well. And as a result, a lot of people thought we should do better. So we actually invested in coronavirus um, about 18 months ago and did the Disease X platform uh, well over 12 months ago. So as it turns out now, of course, everything we do is right at uh, the forefront and at centre stage of our response to this particular pandemic. Um, sadly, it came around a little too early. We weren't quite ready, but at least we had a jump start on it. And so that came about because of the huge amount of global public health work I've done. I was um, the chair of the executive board of the World Health Organization, um, chaired the OECD Committee on Health, so I've got a pretty big connection to international health issues. And then the COVID Coordination Commission, um, one never quite knows why the Prime Minister asks one to do something, but uh, as I've said publicly, when asked to serve, you come from my family, you, you have no choice but to say yes. But having ahead, I think, rather a long career in public service, but also now the, the role I have with the ANZ board, I, as you say, I have a number of other uh, corporate board positions, it means I've got an unusual perspective in that I straddle both the public and the private uh, sector. So it's been my privilege to serve on this commission as well, where we've had an interesting role um, in helping people, but also starting to look towards the future. So in addition to my ANZ role, which I particularly love, uh, these are two important roles and, and things that I'm very committed to. We can go back to the CEPI one because there's some particularly interesting things there, I think, to talk about. But with with the Prime Minister's board, it is new, obviously. This whole thing is new. There is um, There has been a lot of discussion around it. Has it settled into its role? How do you see its role now? 
Well, certainly we have um, essentially, if you think about this, you know, three broad sort of responsibilities. At the beginning, it was about everyone working on the crisis, the beginning of the emergency. And the Commission's role was to make business-to-business -business connections to help where we could. And that included things like smoothing the way on accessing um, PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, things like ventilators to help our frontline health workers and others who needed it access the material they needed in the event that we did have uh, what was looking very likely at the beginning of this, which was a major, major challenge to, to overcome. And so that work's been really important. Also doing things like helping employers who sadly have had to stand down staff, connecting them with other employers who in some cases have been interested in actually recruiting people very often with customer service skills. And we've been able to make some of those connections to help basically transition people from one employer to another. That's been something that's been important. But then also just looking more broadly across our economy, um, how are things going? What could be uh, done to help quickly? Helping give some advice on, for example, JobKeeper in the early stages in terms of who could access that. So some pretty big roles to begin. Then there's been this period which is about uh, preparing people for wor working and living in this environment. And we work really closely with WorkSafe Australia because obviously business's interest is in getting up and running again as fast as possible. But clearly that has to happen safely. And for many, they'd never even heard the word pandemic, let alone thought about how they might have to uh, change their business operations in a world where what was normal can't actually now be the way you practice your business. So helping with that has been really important. And now importantly, I think, also thinking about the longer term. How can we recover? How can we have the world, uh, the most productive economy and um, how can we look to the future in a way that will generate employment so we minimise the impact on lives as fast as we can and as effective as we can. And so we give advice on those matters. I mean, clearly we don't have any administrative responsibilities, but we have connections and we have a capacity to scrutinise propositions and advise on those things. I and mean, essentially that that's the role that we've been asked to play. And as I said, it's been a privilege so far and I will continue to do that job while the Prime Minister wants us to. And at the point where we are now, where the, the spread of the virus hopefully is, is under control, but the restrictions are starting to ease up a little bit, it's a different situation to when you are trying to sort of coordinate the movement of employees from one sector to another. What's the immediate challenge now? Because there is still a lot of sectors the arts, um, sports that require big crowds, you know, a lot of, of food and beverage still can't go back to what would be an economically viable business model. So how do you see the challenges in that regard? Well, the, the challenge is actually to figure out what a business model is for most businesses to get up and operating. And let's take as an example um, something in the tourism space like the ski industry where... Uh, if you think about what it takes to run a business like that, it includes a lot of hospitality type of functions. Um, it includes the movement of large numbers of people. It includes thinking about how you operate safely in an outdoor environment. So it has all of the complexities of any one business, but in fact, it's like an entire village. You actually have to have thought through all of those options and all of those challenges. So essentially what we're looking to do is try and assist businesses to be the best that they can be in this context. Now, no one's saying um, that it's 
going to be necessarily exactly as it was before because in many cases it can't be the same but in many other cases it can operate at at least a reasonable volume and of course that's good for employment it's good for local economies and that's what we're looking to, to ensure. You probably know that in many cases the construction industry has continued throughout this period uh, and they've been able to do that by actually adopting um, just distancing on sites and things of that sort. I'm familiar with it, a couple of large projects myself and those projects have actually been working quite effectively and efficiently. Now, that's not just because they've kept doing what they were doing. They've had to think carefully and thoughtfully about how to run their businesses in this environment. And I think that's going to be the challenge for us going forward, um, absent uh, improved treatments and or a vaccine. You said you started about 18 months ago on the coronavirus. You were looking at disease X. This obviously happened a lot sooner than you would have hoped. But out of that work, did that inform the immediate responses? Was it valuable in its own right? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, essentially what we were able to do, and particularly with um, our Disease X work, and just so people understand, there is no such thing as something called X. It is literally the unknown disease. And what we had done is funded some platform work. In, and the objective of that was when a new pathogen emerged that we wanted the, the firms and researchers that we were working with to be able to produce a candidate vaccine literally from go to woe in 16 weeks. Now, there's a long way from a candidate vaccine to actually having a vaccine we can administer to billions of people, but that is unheard of in the vaccine development world. And indeed, the grant that we gave the University of Queensland, which will be familiar to many of your listeners, I suspect, which we gave to them uh, in very early 2019, that was precisely because they had a platform that was potentially of use in disease X. And of course, as you would know, most likely we've given them further money to help them develop a vaccine candidate based on that work. So yes, it positioned us well. We were able to re, um, look at applications and provide additional funding into the sector in a really rapid uh, period over the January period when this became evident as a major problem. And so all of that has been very, very helpful. Uh, now, we have a long way to go, but it certainly has helped us get a jump on the issue. Well, we do have a long way to go, but you know, thankfully Australia and New Zealand and several other countries have to date had a much better experience with COVID-19 than, than many countries. Why do you think that is? What's your perception on why Australia's done so well? Well, there's a whole series of elements, and undoubtedly there will be multiple PhDs written on this in due course. Firstly, and I, we shouldn't downplay this, the role that the public has played in observing the requests, being good about hand hygiene, all of the little non-pharmaceutical interventions that we talk about that actually make a difference in transmission of the virus. Secondly, we closed the border pretty early in terms of uh, source countries. And thirdly, we stopped things like mass gatherings pretty early. All of that was fantastic and has made a really serious difference. We've also had a very vigorous public health response in tracing when uh, we've identified cases. And that's absolutely important because the trouble with this virus is it disappears underground and it pops out with somebody who's symptomatic and unwell very often after it has infected quite a large number of people. And that is really difficult in terms of getting this sort of thing under control. So our public health people have done a really terrific job. 
And then probably, um, and again, the evidence on this we don't have yet, but I suspect we may also have been a little lucky. And that was probably to do with the amount of overseas travel we had from seriously infected countries, the time of year, etc. All of those things have put us in a position with really the public working in concert with government and with medical authorities to mean that we are literally the envy of the world. And I don't think people should underestimate the number of questions and calls I now get asking people to tell them how we've done so well. So we are in a privileged position, but we need to basically make sure that that continues. In fact, that's one of the, the risks. You know, People have talked about complacency, but when we see this debate about how much should the economy reopen and what the priorities should be and how much emphasis should be on the outcome, there does seem to be some underestimation of how serious the threat was. And you now have people saying, oh, it wasn't that bad, the modelling was wrong, the threat was overestimated. The idea that if we hadn't done all these things, the modelling wouldn't have been wrong and it would have been terrible seems to get lost. Yes, human beings aren't very good at assessing risk unless it's literally roaring at them in their face. And I think that's what we're seeing here. A lot of people now want to say, oh, it was wrong, it was overblown, it's no worse than the flu I've seen on several occasions. And that just is not correct. I just remind people uh, that if you uh, live in New York, if you live in northern Italy, you have seen family and friends decimated by this illness. You have seen people dying in makeshift emergency departments and intensive care units set up in the grounds of hospitals, in car parks, because their system has been completely overwhelmed. And I think we should understand that these are not places where the health system is second rate, where the medical practitioners are poor at their job. This is simply a function of the volume and the severity of the disease. And people say, oh, well, it's just a respiratory disease. Um, I'd invite anybody who's interested to read the first-person accounts of the health workers in places like New York. I mean, this isn't just a respiratory disease. It affects organs. Um, many of the people in intensive care uh, end up on uh, dialysis. And the long-term injury and damage done to people who recover from this illness, we don't know, but we suspect is going to be pretty significant. So this is not the flu. And it is the case that we could have been there as well. And fortunately, because of all the actions I described earlier, that's not where we are. But I do accept it's a part of the human condition um, that if we dodged a bullet, we downplay how, how dangerous it might have been. Mm. As much as history can be a guide to, to this particular pandemic, history and economic history tends to show us that if you manage the health outcome better, then the long-term economic outcome is better as well. And yet the, the debate seems to drift into, well, we've either got to fix the economy or worry about health. We can't do both things at the same time. Yes. I, I look, your, your point's absolutely accurate. And I think anyone who's a student of history, and I, I know several people have been sort of dusting off and, and finding copies of histories of what happened with Spanish flu, noting if we might, that it didn't start in Spain. Spain was the only country that was open about what was going on, and hence the label Spanish flu. But if you look at um, comparisons in the United States between the cities who clamped down early and clamped down hard, uh, and their recovery from those experiences, 
the evidence is pretty stark actually that the countries that let it run and or the cities that let it run and basically had huge death tolls they took much longer to recover and i think so to your point this isn't a it's health or it's economics now i do think there is a point at which uh, we need to balance off every health measure with the economic consequence. So I'm not saying health at all costs. Uh, on the contrary, I'm saying we're running the two things together here. Our health response has been superb and we want our economic response in recovery to be the same. And, and indeed, it gets back to the point that you've made that we can take these opening up measures that we're seeing now because the health response has worked. Absolutely. We would not be in a position to say to people with caution and continued adherence to the measures we've talked about, you can go back to your local cafe. Uh, you can go for a meal with your family to some local restaurant where undoubtedly you know the proprietor and you want to support them. So those things can happen. They have to take steps and measures. We want to be able to trace um, in the event that something happens. And really importantly, we're encouraging people not to go out if they feel unwell and if they do feel unwell to go and get tested because that actually helps us keep it under control. But you're quite right. Um, that, that's why we need to actually get the economy back out of hibernation, but do it in a way that's thoughtful. You've said in, in the past, and you know, with your work with CEPI, it gives you great insight again, but you're optimistic about a vaccine and you're optimistic about some treatments. So how are you thinking about the next 6, 12, 18 months? Do, do you think there will be more waves of reinfection or do you think treatments will come in before we get a vaccine and, and do you still think we'll get a vaccine? Okay, so let, let's take those um, in order. In terms of waves of reinfection, um, there's never been that I'm aware of a documented major epidemic slash pandemic where there hasn't been some form of second wave. What we don't want in this case is for it to be like the impact of Spanish flu in Australia where the second wave was much worse than the first. And I think actually with the kind of actions we've already talked about, we should be able to manage that. In Europe where they have opened up a little, yes, the number of cases has gone up, but they haven't gone up at the rate that they were going up at the beginning of this whole experience. On treatments, well, we hope because treatments will be learning from the experience of our clinicians treating people with the disease. Firstly, they'll get better at that. They'll be able to identify more the patients most at risk and there's already quite a lot of research about what the markers are for people they need to be particularly attentive to. But also now using a variety of um, scientific methods, testing antivirals and a whole series of other medications and that's starting to show some promise. So it has always been the expectation that we would get to some sort of treatment regime earlier than a vaccine. How widely available, of course, anything might be uh, in terms of treatment will depend on what it is and uh, where it's manufactured and all those other usual constraints. But on a vaccine, I am still optimistic, uh, but I think we also need to remember that there are still a number of diseases, uh, including the common cold, uh, HIV, where there is no vaccine, and that's notwithstanding people have tried for many years. So we have to be a realist, but there's a lot of people working on vaccines. So CEPI's right in the middle of this. And in fact, I'm now chairing uh, with the woman who chairs the Gavi board, uh, something called the Accelerator, 
which is looking to look around the world at vaccines and then uh, to ensure that we've got all the right advice, resourcing, etc., for candidates who we think have real prospects. And that also goes then to how we produce those vaccines and how long it would take to actually make them available. So there's quite a lot of work to do, but yes, I am still optimistic about vaccines. We've had a couple of good-looking candidates now in phase two trials, which is really good, and we believe one candidate will be ready to go into phase three trials fairly soon. So that's unprecedented speed, uh, but we've still got a, a few hurdles to get over before we can declare victory. Well, thanks very much, Jane. It's been incredibly enlightening. So what, what sort of advice would you give people in their their day-to-day lives for the you know the foreseeable future because we're not going back to normal anytime soon how how do you manage your life and your expectations i think firstly pay attention to the uh, the medical advice what you find is it will be changing depending on the context and where you are and so you need to um, always pay attention to that and frankly be sensible you know don't take up habits that you would have done previously like shaking hands and you know hugging lots of people because you just don't need to and it potentially brings risk practice that increased hand hygiene cough into your elbow etc but then go and buy that coffee at that local cafe go and visit within reason you know a few of your friends um, go to that restaurant and actually in time get out and about again because actually that's what's going to stimulate the economy do it safely do it thoughtfully uh, but let's Let's do what we can to help some of our uh, friends and colleagues who are running small business. Well, again, thanks very much for your time, Jane. Very much appreciated. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes. This podcast was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.